Okay, we're going to be in Luke chapter 19, starting at verse 28 for the sermon text today. Um, this is the story of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem at the beginning of Holy Week, the last week of his life leading up to his crucifixion and resurrection. Um, when I read it and see how uh, badly people misunderstood and misjudged Jesus, it feels like a, like a little uh, microcosm description of my Christian life where I'm constantly going to Jesus for help with wart removal, and he's constantly uh, offering me a heart transplant. I think I uh, don't want a heart transplant. I don't think I need a heart transplant. I just need some help with this wart and having the wart removed. But his sense of what I need is different than my sense of what I need, and that's almost never not the case. Um, triumphal entry. People were uh, welcoming Jesus, thinking, here's the Messiah that the Jews have been promised for hundreds of years, uh, the great deliverer who's going to come to them. And uh, they're celebrating because what they've expected is finally happening. But when Jesus comes in and really pulls the veil back on who he is and what he came to do, uh, it's totally different than what people expected. And it's totally different than what they thought they needed. Uh, they thought they needed a different kind of Messiah, a different kind of deliverer than the one he was and the one that they were getting. And so by the time they clued into this uh, on Thursday, after Palm Sunday, they were ready in one voice to kill him, asking that Barabbas be released and Jesus be crucified. When they figured out what he thought they needed, um, the kind of help they needed, the kind of mess that they were in in their lives, um, they were so offended that they wanted to kill him. I don't know if you're ever so offended uh, that you find Jesus this provocative and this repulsive or not, but um, we're not different than the people in Israel on Palm Sunday and Maundy Thursday. Uh, there were people like us who figured out what Jesus was saying was tremendously challenging and tremendously difficult and tremendously offensive when we listen to it well, because what he says we really need is different than what we think we really need. And so that's what we're going to think about today. It's not exactly a comfort in the time of coronavirus sermon, but it's a Holy Week sermon. And even if we have to do it virtually, we're doing Holy Week. So let me pray for us and then we'll read the scripture. Father, thank you that you didn't leave us to speculate about you, but you've revealed yourself in your son and through your word. And we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to help us as we listen today and think about what you said, uh, that you would open our hearts and minds to you, and that you would let us uh, see our need of Jesus and feel uh, the beauty of your provision of Jesus for us. Uh, so come and help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, read with me beginning at uh, verse 28 of Luke 19. It says, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? 
And they said, the Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's absolutely true, and it's given to us because he loves us. I saw a, uh, a cartoon uh, showing a pastor at the front door of the church greeting people as they left, which apparently is what good pastors do. And uh, so there's a woman shaking the pastor's hand, and she says, uh, I had a wonderful visit, pastor. And may I say that I found your church every bit as relevant, inspirational, meaningful, caring, and fun as your flyer promised it would be. That's pretty good. I don't know if you get church flyers. When I lived in Georgia, I used to get uh, church flyer advertisements all the time in the mail. And uh, usually I'd find something smug to criticize in them and then, then start to wonder, well, what would you put down if you were supposed to be a marketer for the Christian church, this kind of a religion. What, what can you say to try to sell the Christian faith to people? Uh, because the message is, uh, is uh, pretty pointed and difficult when you uh, face it seriously. I mean, kind of the best you could probably do is a bait and switch arrangement where you say, hey, come to our church and we'll uh, be fun and uh, we'll be inspirational and there'll be a fun place for your kids and things. And then when you show up, we tell you that you're so morally and spiritually broken that you need the death of the Holy Son of God to reconcile you to God. Um, but you sure couldn't put that on the flyer and expect people to come. You know, what would you say? Are you tired of your long, lifelong war with God and looking for a solution? Are you uh, feeling morally bankrupt? Well, have we got a church for you? Yeah. Pity the marketers, right? What are you supposed to say to try to pitch the Christian faith? Um, you got people browsing the internet looking for wart removal tips, and you're trying to sell them on how nice your heart transplant facilities are. You say, our rooms are well decorated, our nurses are very nice, and if someone hears that, what, what are they going to say? They're going to say, well, good for you if you need a heart transplant. Um, if I were ever to find myself in that situation, I might try to remember this and look you up, but all I need is a wart removal. Um, so, good for you, but I'm not interested. 
I don't know how you sell that. Uh, we live in a strange uh, time, though, with people's perceptions and understanding of Jesus, because uh, I think the thing I've run into most often with friends who aren't Christians is that they feel uh, an indifference to Christianity and to Jesus Christ, and they feel that the faith doesn't connect their lives in any way that's meaningful to them or needful for them. And it's so different from the reaction people had when they actually met Jesus and heard what he was saying. I mean, people would uh, be astounded by his teaching, bewildered by what they saw. People would um, leave their jobs immediately to go follow him in some cases because uh, his message was so compelling. And more often than not, people would hear his message and absolutely want him dead. They would want to kill him because of what he has said about them and to them. And so you never really run into the issue of a lot of indifference in people's reaction to Jesus. Um, they feel very provoked by him, and you wonder why. How have we communicated what the Christian faith is if people respond with a um, vague indifference about who he is and what he came to do? Um, you know, when they clue in, to what he's saying about them, you know, their response almost in one voice is, how dare you? How dare you uh, say and infer that I need the kind of help from God that you're planning to come give? I, I wanted a Messiah to come to do what real Messiahs are supposed to do, which is vindicate me and crush my enemies and put me in my rightful place in the world. Not, not to come with this diagnosis of me that says, I'm so broken myself that I need a dramatic rescue from the mercy of God, which is what Jesus came to say and what he came to do. So um, what you wind up with is Jesus is just the wrong kind of Messiah. He's the wrong kind of Messiah. He's not what people wanted and expected and what they thought they needed at all. And they are not different than us. Uh, he's not coming with the help that we think we need either. And when we find out what he's saying, it tends to be provocative for us too. So we're going to talk about how Jesus is the wrong kind of a Messiah under the three kind of headings of anointed leaders that were precursors of the Messiah in the Old Testament, the prophet, the priest, and the king, and how uh, in every one of those uh, offices or jobs that Jesus comes to do for us, uh, he does it differently than we think he should do. So, first of all, he's the wrong kind of a king. He's the wrong kind of king. You know, what people had thought about with the Messiah is that there's going to be a king that comes one day. He's going to be like David, but only better. He's going to not only establish, reestablish the glory days that we had, but he's going to expand those. And uh, so a greater David's coming, or uh, in Jesus' time, a greater Judas Maccabeus is going to come, they hoped. I don't know if you're familiar much with the story of Judas Maccabeus, but... It's about 200 years before uh, Jesus' day. And uh, there was a Syrian king named Antiochus Epiphanes who had conquered Israel and who hated Israel and their God and had been just an abominable person. He'd done everything he could to insult and disparage their religion. He banned circumcision and Sabbath-keeping from Israel. If he found a boy who'd been circumcised, they would kill the boy and kill his mother 
and expose their bodies as a warning for others. He um, took pigs into the temple. Uh, he sacrificed pigs, the unclean animals, on the high altar in the temple to desecrate the temple as uh, badly as he knew how to and then turned it into a temple for Zeus. And so Judas Maccabeus uh, led, along with a couple of his brothers, a revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes and uh, defeated him and drove him out. And it's a great victory. It's uh, very familiar in the Jewish uh, mindset and its understanding of their history. It's the, uh, it's the, it's what Habak um, Hanukkah is all meant to commemorate and celebrate. And when Judas Maccabeus led the procession uh, to the temple to restore and purify the temple again as uh, the temple of Yahweh, uh, the people waved palm branches in front of him because he was the great delivering king, just like they waved the palm branches on Palm Sunday. Um, so Jesus comes in on a colt, which is odd to anyone else. I'm sure for the Romans, it just seems silly. Why is this grown man on a little colt? Um, it's disproportionate and weak looking. It's not a huge stallion that a general should ride in on as a colt, but the Jewish people knew that this is Zechariah's prophecy that our king of peace comes mounted on a donkey. And they thought, you know, this is happening. The king that we've expected, the greater Judas Maccabeus, the greater David is finally here. And they're coming down the Mount of Olives toward the city of Jerusalem, gonna come up through the gates of the city and then on up to the temple. And they're singing the Hallel Psalms, the Psalm 113 to 118, uh, that, were, that were used in processional as people came into Jerusalem. Uh, pretty regularly for festivals and feasts, and they're singing from Psalm 118, uh, which Melissa read for us earlier today. Psalm 118, like they always did, and it has the, the antiphonal response. The king is saying, open the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them to give thanks to Yahweh. And then the people respond back, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, save us. And they're singing this, but now they're thinking, you know, this is what we've always said kind of hypothetically, but this is really happening now. Uh, we're throwing the palm branches and our cloaks down in front of him because the king that we've longed for is finally here. He's finally here. The thing they didn't seem to notice at the time was in between the king's call to open the gates of righteousness and the people's response of blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is the verse that says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And Jesus understands this, that he is the stone the builders have rejected. And so in the midst of everyone else's triumph, he is crying while they cheer, weeping over Jerusalem uh, because of the judgment that's coming upon her. So Jesus comes as the king that they've waited for, but he doesn't come to overthrow Tiberius or just, just to overthrow Tiberius. He comes to overthrow them the uh, believers, the good people, God's team. He comes to conquer them, to depose them from the thrones of their lives, as well as to depose Tiberius from the throne uh, over Israel. And he doesn't come to vindicate them. He comes to conquer them. Because what they need is not just deliverance from their external enemies. They need their lifelong war of independence with God to be ended. And that's what he's come to do. Mercifully, 
but offensively. Because who thinks they're in a lifelong war with God, especially if you're uh, one of the Orthodox, if you're one of the true believers, the one who's trying to be good, wearing the white hat, one of the goodies, not the baddies. You don't need to be conquered. You need to be helped and vindicated. So they didn't feel their need for that. He's just the wrong kind of king. He's not like Judas Maccabeus. He's, uh, he's much more offensive than Judas Maccabeus or David. So how do you write an ad for that? If you're, if you're in charge of marketing uh, for this movement, how do, you, how do you write an ad for that? You know, um, you're speaking to people as consumers, but what you're really saying is I want you to come and be a conscript. You can come and be deposed from the throne of your life. Follow Jesus and you will give up uh, all of your, the control of your life, all of your freedom. Uh, you'll give up your control of your time. You'll give up your aspirations for your children. You'll give your career decisions over to him. And in all of these things, you will become a servant uh, rather than a king yourself. Um, how, do you, how do you pitch that? You know, I'm not sure. You, you can pitch it to people who feel like that trying to run their own lives has made a hash of things. But is that you? I mean, the people that Jesus met who'd made a hash of their lives thought this was a good message. I need a better king than me. But most of them thought, I am totally happy with me as king of my life. And so you're the wrong kind of Messiah, the wrong kind of king uh, for me and for what I need. And if you're going to come around here and say the things you're saying, then I just assume you be dead and they give us Barabbas. So he's the wrong kind of king, um, but he's also the wrong kind of prophet. Right? He's supposed to be uh, the Messiah is the prophet par excellence. He is the final word from God coming to speak what needs to be spit, said. And what I need from a prophet, and I think what most of the uh, Jewish people at the time thought they needed from a prophet, was they needed someone who was an inspiring communicator to encourage them and motivate them to obey. Um, and... To be a good prophet, he also needs to be totally bold and fearless uh, in his condemnation of them. Those people out there, the baddies, who are messing up my life and messing up my country and messing up my religion. And those people need to be stopped and they need to be told. And that's what I need a prophet to do. And um, instead, Jesus came to press God's case against us, against us, as if we're the problem, not those people out there being the problem. And um, in this, he's behaving like prophets always did, and he's receiving the prophet's reward, which is uh, to be killed by the people that he prophesied to. But he's like um, the great prophet Jeremiah, uh, the weeping prophet. Jesus comes into Jerusalem weeping. When everyone else around him is cheering and triumphal, uh, he comes in brokenhearted uh, because of the truth that has to be told to the people, because of the justice that's coming uh, onto the heads of the people. And it's heartbreaking to him. But he's, like Jeremiah, unwilling to, um, as Jeremiah said, heal the wounds of my people lightly, saying to them, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And Jesus is unwilling to say peace, peace, when there is no peace, but is willing to, to tell the hard truth to the people that he's coming to rescue. Um, 
This is part of what's so beautiful about Jesus is in him, uh, truth and tears always go together. Always go together. Uh, there's no gloating judgment. Uh, there's no indifferent or callous, capricious judgment. But uh, the message of judgment comes through tears. Um, that's a, a lesson for us in itself. Um, I know a lot of you are concerned about issues of social justice and eager to right wrongs that you see societally around you and in people's lives around you. Um, but justice ministry for a Christian always involves tears. It always involves tears because we know our own complicity in injustice, and it involves tears uh, because we recognize ourselves in oppressors. We recognize ourselves in perpetrators. And so when we speak the truth, even when it's hard truth and needful truth, um, it has to come through tears if it's going to be Christian, a Christian prophetic voice. Um, I feel like our uh, political conversations have done a tremendous amount of damage to Jesus's reputation in the world because of this. Because when people hear the church speaking prophetically, um, they don't see any tears. Um, they just hear condemnation and they hear judgment and they hear self-righteousness. Uh, to speak as a true prophet for Jesus is to speak through tears. So, um, can you imagine a politician uh, ending a speech and saying, rather than God bless you and God bless the United States of America, if a politician instead said, God have mercy on your soul and God have mercy on the soul of the United States of America. Can you imagine uh, how jarring that would sound? Uh, for old people, you'll know it would sound like a needle being scratched across a vinyl record. God have mercy on your souls and God have mercy on the soul of the United States of America. Uh, we would find that highly offensive. Actually, some public figures are called to say those words. They're uh, judges in capital uh, sentencing hearings. You're sentenced to death, and may God have mercy on your soul. But when someone says that, we realize they, uh, there's an embedded diagnosis in it, and it's not flattering. Um, so this is the wrong prophet. He's saying the wrong things. Um, he's, he's saying that I'm the problem. He's saying that you're the problem in the world and that the problems you have spiritually and morally at root are problems because you're at war with God. And his law uh, exposes you in that and shows you your need of a Savior like Jesus. Uh, not a prophet who comes to say, try harder to be a good person, uh, but a prophet who comes to say, you've been weighed in the scales and found wanting. And I don't need a prophet like that. I don't want a prophet like that. That's the wrong kind of prophet. That's what the people in Jerusalem uh, concluded. That's what most of us conclude too. Right? He's the wrong kind of king, wrong kind of prophet. He's also the wrong kind of priest. What do you want from your priest? What do you want from your uh, spiritual directors and uh, ministers and leaders? You want insights, morally and spiritually, uh, awesome worship experiences that you can be a part of, uh, motivation 
to be good. Occasionally a little penance so that you don't have to just live with an overwhelmingly guilty conscience. You can do some, some uh, compensatory good works to try to make up for what you've done badly so you can feel good about yourself again. That's what I want. That's the kind of priest I want. It's the kind of priest Hazel Motes wanted. He was uh, Flannery O'Connor's character in Wise Blood. And he was uh, a preacher who had started his own church, and it was called the Church of God Without Jesus Christ Crucified. And uh, it's the church everyone wants. You can have God, his blessings, inspiration. You can be spiritual. You can be moral. You can help other people. You can invest yourself. Uh, but you don't have to face up any kind of a need of a Savior like Jesus coming to your rescue. You're just not the kind of person that needs that kind of rescue. And it's the perfect church. It's the kind of priest you want, as Hazel Motes' character. Um, but when Jesus comes to the temple, as the ultimate priest, he comes in angry. He turns over the, temple, the uh, tables of the money changers in the temple, who were set up in the court of the Gentiles. Right? That's as far in as the Gentiles could go, the God-fearers. There's the court of the Gentiles, inside that the court of the Jewish women, inside that the court of the Jewish men, and then the, the uh, inner sanctum, including the Holy of Holies, where uh, priests could go, and then the, the Holy of Holies, only the high priest, once a year. Um, but the temple is supposed to be this magnetic force in the world where people all over the world are drawn to worship Israel's God, and uh, they are drawn in with the hope of mercy and the hope of reconciliation to God. And here in the only place that the Gentiles can come and gather for worship uh, the uh, Jews had set up tables to sell uh, sacrifices and to change money from the idolatrous Roman coins to coins that could be used uh, in offering there in the temple and and ostensibly to be nice, right? They're trying to make things easy on people. It's very seeker-friendly. You know, we want to we make your worship experience seamless and we'll handle all the needs that you have to find these animals and get, these, get this coinage and things. So you don't have to worry about that before, but Jesus said, what you've done is you've desecrated the one place the Gentiles could come to be close to me. You're missing the point of the temple. Um, and it also misses a deeper sense of the point of the temple, which is that the way the temple is set up, it's the place of God's special dwelling on earth with his people. But there are barrier after barrier after barrier set up between the people and God. And... Um, all the walls and all the courts describe uh, exclusion and repulsion. The blood running in rivers from all the thousands of sacrifices uh, represents to the people their need of propitiation, uh, someone to suffer in their place, to, to bear their penalty, uh, to take what they've deserved. And even with all of the sacrifices at the Passover, it's not enough. Uh, all of these things were pointing toward Jesus, who is going to be the ultimate temple, the dwelling of God with men. He became flesh and made his tabernacle among us. Uh, he is God with us. And access to God comes because Jesus is not only the priest, but he's the sacrifice. Right? He's finally a worthy sacrifice, finally someone whose death uh, could be in our stead a substantial and effective um, removal of our guilt. And Jesus knows this as he comes in. Um, in Psalm 118, uh, one of the things the worshipers sing is they're singing the Hallel coming up to the temple is bind the festal sacrifice to the horns of the altar. 
And Jesus knows as he's coming into Jerusalem and hearing this song that he is the sacrifice that's going to be bound to the horns of the altar. He is the true Passover lamb whose death enables God's avenging angel to pass over our door, just like in the exodus from Egypt at the original Passover. So what Jesus is saying is, I'm the true temple. Everyone can come into the presence of God, into the Holy of Holies, can be in relationship with me directly, uh, but only through me, only through me. Otherwise, all the exclusions are there to protect you from waltzing into the presence of a God whose presence you cannot possibly endure. Only through Jesus are we able to come with confidence and boldness before God and to come safely. It's not safe at all to go into the presence of God uh, without this Messiah and mediator making the way for us. And the temple represents all this. And Jesus says, um, you've, you've misunderstood this. You've missed the point of it. Um, the point of it is me. I'm a priest who's coming um, not just to inspire you, but I'm coming to die for you because that's what's required for you to be in relationship with God. And of course, everyone says, well, that's not the kind of help I need. I have warts and you're offering me a heart transplant and you're the wrong kind of priest for me. Um, I don't need that kind of a priest. I'd rather have one that uh, encourages me and motivates me and somewhat flatters me. So he's the wrong kind of priest. When you think about the popular notion of who Jesus is, uh, the way people respond to him, it's like um, everybody just likes him. You know, he's like some off-brand Gandhi figure. He's just a nice person who went around talking about peace and was misunderstood terribly. I mean, I don't misunderstand him, but, you know, people misunderstood him, and therefore they killed him. He's basically just a more religious Mr. Rogers, and he's trying to tell everybody to be nice and to feel love and... Um, you know, if that, if that was true, why would they kill him? Why would they kill him? And if all he was is a misunderstood uh, preacher of nonviolence and peace, um, how do you explain how his influence as a disgraced, crucified, uh, religious teacher, guru, how did that subvert the entire Roman Empire and eventually take over the world? Uh, how does that compel uh, the faith of the nations that has compelled the, the, the nice Jesus who just tried to encourage other people to be nice too doesn't account for the influence that his life has had in the world? Um, how, um, he didn't just come to try to encourage us to be a little bit better people and to fly right and straighten up. He came to rescue us, to end our war with God and bring us home, uh, which he does in his mercy, which he does freely, joyfully even, because he wants us home with him. But there's not another way to come home. Uh, we need a priest not to flatter us, but to be bound to the horns of the altar. We need a prophet not to tell us peace when there's no peace, uh, but to tell us the truth about our need. And we need a king not just to vindicate us, but we need a king to conquer us and take over the throne of our lives. So during the Holy Week, and as you think today and talk together in your table talks, um, don't be quick to assume that Jesus is just like you thought he would be. 
because it wasn't true for anybody that knew him uh, in his life. And it's really not true for us now. Um, but I encourage you, come to Jesus to find the help that he thinks you need. Now let's pray. Father, we uh, feel like we know enough um, to embrace Jesus as he's really presented. And yet, we know enough, too, to know that every objection people had to him during the original Holy Week, we have, too. And we pray that you would let us not only see Jesus for who he is, but let us feel our need of him, and that you would let us run to him and cling to him for mercy and deliverance like he offers. Uh, we thank you that he endured what he endured for our sakes um, and did it uh, with joy and love for us, which is very hard for us to comprehend. But we pray that you would draw us close to you and knit our hearts to you through Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.